This sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. I'm excited to share the word with you today. It's going to be something slightly different. And, and, and I must be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous for, for two reasons. The, the one is that today is actually in the form of a little bit of a history lesson, and I know not all of us are super keen on that kind of thing. So I want to, I want to pray God's grace and provision over you so that you can just hang on to your attention span for long enough to get what I'm trying to communicate, because I, I promise you it is good. It will be worth it. Please just hang in there. Don't zone out the way that you did when you were at school. Amen. And the second reason why I'm nervous, you'll, you'll see just now, but I want to start off this morning by just sharing one of the few memories that I have of my paternal grandfather is how, as a family, we arrived at their house for a, for a summer holiday, the Christmas holiday in, in the Southern Hemisphere, and, and I was very excited to tell everybody about the, the details of this new sport that I had taken up called golf. And I was about eight or nine years old at the time. And it wasn't long before I dragged my grandfather outside for a quick demonstration on the lawn. And so in order for this story to make sense to you, I actually need to demonstrate two different kinds of golf shots to you. So do not fear. I've brought the necessary equipment. I'm going to put the mic down just for a second. Right, so, so the first type of golf shot that I'm going to demonstrate to you, is, it's called a chip shot. And it's where you pop the ball delicately up into the air for a short space of time. And when it lands, it runs in a controlled fashion towards the target. So, something like that. Now, the, the second type of shot that I need to demonstrate to you quickly, thanks, thanks Rian, is, is what happens when you try to play a chip shot but you inadvertently hit the ball a little bit higher up in the equator, and, and, and this is what happens. As you can see, that's, that's a disaster. And so, and so after demonstrating to my grandfather a neatly played chip shot, he asked me to hand over the club to him so that he could give it a go, and he proceeded to smack the ball right in the teeth, sending it careening at about shin height across the length of the lawn, and the yard, and it crashed into the, into the boundary fence at the other side of the yard. That, that's quite typical if it's the first time that you're trying to hit a golf ball. But I, I was horrified to learn that my grandfather was quite impressed with what he had just accomplished because he reasoned to himself that if that's the kind of power that he has in reserve, then, then surely there must be a future for him if there were something like a, like a seniors tour where you could go play golf seriously and, and, and he hears that they make quite a bit of money. And, and my little nine-year-old head was absolutely racing, trying to think, how, how can I break the news to him that the only reason that that might have seemed impressive to send the ball screaming at shin height across the lawn with, with fairly minimal effort, the only reason that might have seemed impressive is because there's no comparison between a suburban backyard and an actual full-sized golf course where the hole is actually hundreds of meters away and there are all sorts of obstacles in the place. And so if he were to show up at a golf course for a seniors tournament, he would find himself competing against players that can hit the ball hundreds of meters with control, and they're able to shape the flight of the ball right to left or left to right as, as the design of the course might demand. 
I was just absolutely mortified that my grandfather was being serious. I think looking back today, he was probably just pulling my leg. But I, I thought to myself, he would be in for such a rude awakening if he were to go to the golf course based on the exposure that he's had and the, and the, and the expectation that he has had. And the kind of is, that's my segue into saying, I, I think that the year 2021 has been a rude awakening for many of us and for, and for us collectively as the church of God, you know, as... As a church, over the past six or seven years, we've, we've grown immensely, I think, in our relationship with, with the Holy Spirit and doing ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've, and we've begun to see the gospel being preached, not just in terms of a message with content, but also the demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God. And... Uh, you know, as we've gone to places like Nepal and to India and, and Brazil and Argentina, we, we've seen wonderful things. We've seen cancer disappear. We've seen blind eyes restored. We've seen families and, and marriages being restored. And, and it's incredible. And, it, and it's, I, think it's, I think it's definitely a sign of, of immense progress. But it's difficult to ignore the contrast between that experience and that growth and what we've just gone through I think over the last couple of months and and what I'm wanting to propose to you is that I can't shake the feeling that that our our Holy Spirit golf game at the moment it just lacks a bit of context in the same way that my, my grandfather's experience of golf he was impressed with what he had inadvertently achieved, but it lacked context of what, is actually, what it actually entails and what is actually available. And so, so for us as the church, in our relationship and our walk with the Holy Spirit, I'm not here today to tell you that your, that your Holy Spirit golf game is bad. I'm, I'm here to tell you today that, that the game of Holy Spirit golf, if that makes any kind of sense to you, I hope it does, I'm here to tell you that the game of Holy Spirit golf is so much bigger than what we thought. And I'm, I'm wanting us to journey through a little bit of a, a study of church history, and I'm wanting, to, to, I'm wanting that to illustrate and to demonstrate to us how and why the church, I think, largely finds itself chipping golf balls in the confines of a suburban backyard when we are actually called to operate on the full-scale playing field and, and really opening the shoulders and hitting bombs. So... With that, I want, us to, I want us to just pray, and we're going to dive into it. Father God, we just, yeah, we want to thank you this morning for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for the promise of the Father that is your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we just honor your presence here. I invite you, Lord. I invite you to come, Lord, and to teach us, Lord, and to lead us and to guide us into all truth, in Jesus' name. God, this morning we just commit, Lord, to, to not just lean on what we can process and what we can analyze, Lord, in our, in our own abilities, Lord. We, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open our eyes to the truth, Lord. Open our eyes to, to the heart of the Father, in the name of Jesus, and come and reveal to us the mind of Christ, in Jesus' name. So I just want to start off with a scripture in, in Luke chapter 24, 
verse 49, where Jesus is speaking and he says, Listen carefully, I'm sending the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, upon you. But you are to remain in the city of Jerusalem until you, have clothed, until you are clothed and fully equipped with power from on high. So that, that's from the Amplified Version. And I, and I do want to make a, make a distinction here. It's important that we shouldn't oversimplify the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the fact that you and I have heard the message of the gospel at some point and we responded and we said at that stage, yes, Lord, I am a sinner and I need a savior. I repent and I ask that you would forgive me and we, and we get born again. If it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit, we couldn't even have done that. So the Holy Spirit is at work and always has been at work in the hearts of men and in the church. But what I'm wanting to focus on this morning is specifically this aspect of the, of the role of the Holy Spirit where, where he clothes us and he fully equips us with power from on high in order for us to carry out the Great Commission and the instructions of Jesus. So another little thing before we get started, you might learn of things that were done in the past by maybe by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Protestant churches, and some of the things that you might see or might learn might horrify you, but I also want to encourage you that that's not what this is about. The focus is not on who did what wrong. The focus here is for us to actually see a trajectory of how God is sovereignly moving to restore the bride of Christ and for us to accurately contextualize where we find ourselves and what we see around us in terms of what, is, what God is doing in the earth so that we can partner with him. Amen. So to start off, are we looking at, at the timeline? To start off, we need to understand that in the early days of the church, for the first couple of centuries, the Christians were, it was also referred to as the followers of the way. And you need to understand that choosing the way with, with a capital T, capital W, was a perilous path to choose because Christianity was persecuted. So there was no societal pressure for people to just nominally decide to identify as a Christian. There was, there was no incentive for that. There was no benefit to that. If you decided to put your trust, your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, you were literally laying your life down. And, and the faith was persecuted, but it, it meant that there was a, a very high degree of purity and a very high degree of power in the church that manifested. And that's what we see in the book of Acts as we study the New Testament. And as the church grew... Eventually, we get to a point where, where Christianity becomes mainstream and it became the state religion. And all of a sudden, it was like a, a door being opened and multitudes of, of people who hadn't necessarily even really committed their lives to Christ suddenly had an incentive to now identify as believers. And so it was a challenging time for the church. And at this time... One of the key figures was a man called Augustine, and he was, a, he was a philosopher, and he was a theologian, and he was a prolific writer, and most of what he did for the church was very good and very positive, but with the benefit of, of hundreds of years of hindsight, what, what we can see 
about his influence on the church is, is that he, he was instrumental in shifting the church away from a, a warfare worldview towards what is referred to as a blueprint worldview. Now, the warfare worldview is where the church recognizes that the kingdom of heaven is in conflict with the kingdom of darkness. And so when we see evil manifesting, whether that be in sickness or in famine or death, that it's the church's obligation to resist the kingdom of darkness and to pray against that. The blueprint worldview, on the other hand, is a far more philosophical worldview where the church began to see evil manifest and instead of automatically resisting, would begin to question and, and ask itself, how can we find the will of God in what is happening? Because obviously he's sovereign, and so we just need to start asking the right questions. And it sounds virtuous, but like I said, with the benefit of hundreds of years of hindsight, we can actually see the church departing from the original commission that Jesus gave. A contemporary of Augustine was Jerome, and he, he was responsible for translating the Bible from the original languages of, of Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And once again, it was mostly an incredible job that he did, adding a lot of value. But there's some key, some key scriptures where we see that the prevailing worldview of the time was being translated into the Bible through his work. And, and, a, and a prime example is the book of James chapter 5, verse 14 to 15, we're properly translated. Those verses read, Is any one of you sick? You should call the elders of the church and pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. But that phrase, the Lord will make him well, many of our Modern English translations say and the Lord and the prayer of faith will heal the sick person. He translated as the prayer of faith will save the sick person. And if you read that following into the verses after that, where it says, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has sins, he, he will be forgiven, we can see how that actually laid the foundation for what became the Roman Catholic sacrament of, of um, last rites. And so... Again, that's not a terrible thing. It's appointed for all of us to die at least once. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's a good idea to make sure if somebody's going to die that, they, that they're going to go to heaven. But again, with hundreds of years of, of hindsight, we see how the church started to transition from a body that was actively carrying out the Great Commission of God, where Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world I want you to raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, because freely you have received, now freely give. The church was transitioning very, very rapidly to an entity that would send ministers to go pray for the sick, but with no expectation that they would be healed. It was just to make sure that when they die, that they go to heaven. And, and what we see is, is the, the origins of, of the doctrine of cessationism. It sounds like a fancy word, but it, it's basically when theologians need to make up doctrines to explain the deficit between what we experience practically on the ground and what we read of in Acts. And, and the doctrine of cessationism basically says that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit was only given, were only given for a period of time 
until the last of the apostles died, or some people say it's until the biblical canon was closed off, and then after that we weren't ever meant to have that. And, and so that was mainstream in terms of what the church believed at that time. And the shocking thing is that it resulted in the Holy Spirit, in terms of his role as the one that clothes us with power from on high, has been sidelined quite aggressively and quite radically for more than 1,500 years in the history of the church. And so if we look at our timeline there, we've got the, the Dark Ages, which some people call by other names, leading into the Middle Ages. And, and I'm not saying that nothing of any interest or any value happened there. Sometimes the miraculous would still manifest. But in terms of how the church viewed it, it was viewed as the exception and not the rule. And it was viewed as God sovereignly deciding to intervene, sometimes if you're lucky. And in fact, during the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, if you happen to operate in one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like, for example, you have a dream, an encounter with God, or you see a vision, you were actually in real danger of, of being called before the religious authorities and being branded a heretic. And many people were faced with the choice of either having to recant and renounce what they've experienced or face being being persecuted as a heretic by the church. And so just for a little bit of context, so the Black Death, 1347 to 1351. But so we have this incredibly long period of time where the Holy Spirit, by all accounts, seems to be sidelined in terms of the church and its history. And we get to the 1500s. The Reformation happened, and, and it's rightly celebrated as, as a wonderful occurrence. And it's a, if we look at it again with the benefit of hundreds of years of hindsight, I believe it's, it's God sovereignly moving to begin to restore the church. And what happened is that Martin Luther, he wrote, it wasn't a scathing piece that he wrote. He, he wrote a very searching thesis on Basically, I wonder if it's really the right thing for the Roman Catholic Church to sell indulgences. In other words, tell people that if you give us money, then we can guarantee you that your soul will be saved. And, and that's how they funded their building projects. And so Martin Luther wrote what is called the 95 Theses. And basically what he was saying is, I'm questioning whether this is the right thing. And... The end of that story is that they, he ended up in this big showdown with the Roman Catholic Church leadership where he was told to either recant or else. And by the grace of God, he chose or else. And that is what triggered the Reformation. And, it, and again, it's, I mean, it's an entire study on its own. I'm really glancing over these things. But another incredible thing that happened as a result of, of Martin Luther's work is that the Bible was translated into the language of the common man for the first time. And so, so we see the Protestant church breaking away from the Roman Catholic church and the Bible becoming accessible again to the common person. And so the word of God could begin to permeate society again. And if you, if you look at history from that perspective, we, we, we see quite dramatic and tri- quite rapid change throughout Europe as a result of this. And unfortunately, 
when the Protestant church movement broke away from the Roman Catholic Church because of unbiblical doctrines and because of corrupt practices, they didn't reject the doctrine of cessationism. So cessationism and the belief that the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is not for, um, is not for the modern-day church, that remained mainstream as far as the church was concerned. And, and so we see that for another, for another extended period of time. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just searching for a, for a tissue. And, and again, we can, we can kind of see how it's, it seems like God just sovereignly decided, I need, to, I need to intervene. And we begin to learn for the first time in 1842 within the, the Protestant church movement, somebody actually started to pray with some kind of regularity and, for some kind, and with some kind of efficient or effectiveness for the sick. A man called Johann Blumhardt, he lived from 1805 to 1880. He began to pray for the sick, and he had an incredible amount of success. People were getting healed, and people were getting delivered, and revival would break out around those happenings as, as the news would spread, and people were so hungry for the power of God. And unfortunately, the Lutheran church, where, where he was a member of the denomination, responded by asking him to please stop it. Because it's causing people from other parishes to want to come to yours, and we can't have that kind of thing. And so, again, luckily, by God's grace, he, he didn't desist, but he, he resigned out of the denom- denomination, and he continued with, with his own ministry. And again, I'm getting the picture that, that things are shifting in terms of this historic timeline and the trajectory of the church. Moving on, I want to get to the next point. In 1901, a man called Charles Fox Parham, he's, he's referred to by many as the father of modern-day Pentecostalism. So he was, a, he was a devout, self-taught student of the Scriptures, and as a young man, he felt he was called by God to preach. And because of his rural upbringing, he actually wasn't exposed to a lot of mainstream church doctrine at the time. So he studied the Bible by himself, and he practiced preaching at cows in the meadows. And when he got to, to the age where he had to now make a decision about his career, he actually turned away from, from pursuing the call of God to preach, and he wanted to study medicine. Because in those days, you were basically condemned to a life of poverty if you were going to become an itinerant preacher. And he didn't, he didn't want that. So he found himself outside the will of God, and he found himself battling with rheumatic fever, and so his condition was regressing very, very rapidly. And so in this wrestling with God, he had a revelation from the Word where suddenly he realized that it's, it, it is God's will to heal as much as it is God's will to save. And so he prayed this simple prayer. He said, God, if thy will be done in me, I shall be whole. And he, and he was instantly healed. And so with that, God called him and said to him, I want you to take this message to the nations, the message of not just salvation, but that Jesus died at the cross for, for deliverance and for healing as well as salvation. It's all, it's all paid for at the same time. And so he began a Bible school, and 
1901, he gave an assignment to his, to his class to study the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And he was absolutely shocked to see that they all basically came back with the same findings, that those were all believers, they were disciples of Jesus, and yet they still needed to be in, endowed with power from on high. And when it happened, they all prayed in tongues. It was like people just glanced over this. And, and you need to understand that where we, where we are now, that's not, that's not really strange and it's not really foreign. But in the early 1900s, you had no frame of reference for that because it, just, it hadn't been seen apart from maybe isolated pockets here or there for hundreds and hundreds of years. But after reviewing all of these, these students' assignments, this excitement seemed to break out throughout this Bible school, and, and everybody actually began to grasp hold of this idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not just for the apostles and the disciples in biblical times, it's actually for the church. And so they embarked on a three-day fast, after which, during a chapel service, one, one of his students came forward and said to him that she feels called into the mission field, and, and she would like him to pray for her for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he kind of tried to explain, listen, I haven't even received the baptism myself. I don't speak in tongues. And she insisted, and so he prayed. And after a short while of praying, she was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And she began to speak in Chinese, in Mandarin. And that was all she spoke for three days. And, and very soon after that, Charles Parham himself also was baptized in the Holy Spirit and many others in his ministry. And you can make a study of his biography by itself, but I need to move on. The next point on our timeline is, is 1905. The Welsh Revival is another incredible happening in our, in our history. The nation of Wales was completely transformed through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit over 100,000 people were saved in a very short space of time in the country. And you can still go look back at, at historical records. There were football leagues that just weren't contested for those two years because the stadiums were empty. They didn't even have players to fill the teams. People were at church all the time. There are even stories of how people would start queuing for the morning prayer service at 4 a.m., but they had to queue outside because the evening service hadn't been dismissed yet. So either they were very, very devoted or something very, very special was happening in those services. People were actually encountering the presence and the Spirit of God. And God used a man called Evan Roberts mightily during the Welsh Revival. And um, he testified how He'd been crying out to God, and he'd asked God for 100,000 souls to be saved. And he was, very, he was kind of depressed and, uh, and very discouraged and disheartened with the ineffectiveness, as far as you could tell, of Christianity. And so God started to visit him, and, and he spoke of how for a period of three to four months, every evening or every morning at 1 a.m., God himself would come and wake him up, and he would spend time speaking with him face to face until 5 a.m., and over the course of that period, he was completely transformed. And Evan Roberts, his mantra was that, I can do nothing without the Holy Spirit. So it was a, 
It was a challenging revival for many people because the services were completely unstructured. It was much more like a, it was just a continual intercession meeting. There wasn't orchestrated singing or preaching really happening. Maybe from time to time somebody would get up and share an inspired message, but it was very, very unstructured. But from there, it quickly rippled out over the rest of the world. And, and so our next point on the timeline is, is the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. And there's some people that say it's between 500 and 600 million, that's the number for Pentecostal Christians alive today, that can trace their roots back to this revival in Los Angeles. And what happened at the Azusa Street Revival, again, it was a, a small group of people under the leading and, and, the, and the teaching of, of a man called William J. Seymour, who began to believe and, and grasp hold of the, of the truth that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is actually for the modern-day church. It's not just for, uh, for the apostles and, and the biblical times. And so they embarked on a 10-day fast, on the third day of which the first person in their congregation was baptized in the Holy Spirit. A lady called Jenny Evans Moore, who later became Seymour's wife, she was baptized in the Holy Spirit and having never played the piano and having never spoken in a different tongue, suddenly got up and walked to a piano and started playing and singing in tongues. And, and the news spread very rapidly. So people were rushing to come and encounter this brand, brand new thing, Pentecost. People had only heard about it in the Bible. They weren't... They weren't happy clappies, you know, doing their thing down the road that uh, people chose to ignore. It just, it just wasn't there. It was absent for so long. And God began to restore what was always his design for the church. And an interesting thing about the Azusa Street Revival is that many of the people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit, when they received their tongues and their prayer language, they could recognize other, it was earthly human languages, and so the people would just assume, well, I must go to wherever this language is pointing me. And so they went from there all over the world. And that's why, that's why the impact of the Azusa Street Revival is so broad. And, and they currently estimate it's between 500 and 600 million people like you and me, Pentecostal believers, Christians who believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and the gifts of the Spirit are intended for us. It actually comes from that work that God started to do there. And, and so much of what I'm sharing today, it comes from a couple of books that I've read, the God's Generals series by Robert Slairdon. It's a very good, very good read if you, if you want to look at it yourself. And it's got biographies of many of these prominent figures. And I started reading this book, and I thought to myself, man, this, this is really incredible. How could this have been happening in the early 1900s, and I'd never heard about it. What, you know, what, what is up with that? It must be so sad. I wonder what happened for it to fizzle out. And when I did a little bit of further studying and reading, I was shocked to learn that it didn't fizzle out in the early 1900s. In fact, that move of God continued to pick up momentum into what is referred to as the voice of healing revival from the 1940s through to 1956. And it is said that in 1956, there were, there were 49 
separate itinerant evangelists crisscrossing America, pitching massive tents, holding revival meetings where healing, miracles, and salvation was common. 49 different people like that traveling all over America, prominent healing evangelists. To give you another indication, Catherine Kuhlman, who was a, a contemporary of these particular, these particular evangelists, she has two million people saying that I testify of being healed through her ministry. So that's, that's not a claim that she or her, her ministry makes. That's just documenting and collating information and feedback that is, that is coming from, from the general population. There's a, I want to share a quick testimony of a, of a healing that occurred in one of her services. A man called George Orr was a World War I veteran. And after the war, he came back and he, and he worked in an industrial factory. So he, as part of his job, he had to pour molten metal from a crucible into a different container. And he got a little bit hasty. And it splashed, and a, and a drop of the molten metal landed in his eye. And he couldn't get it out, so it just sat there, absolutely destroying his eye and his eyelid until the time he got to hospital and they could take it out. And the doctor said, your eye is completely destroyed. You'll never see again. And over the years that followed, he noticed that he was starting to lose the sight in his, in his other eye. And friends and family advised him that maybe he should go to one of these meetings that Catherine Kuhlman was, was having because everybody is always hearing about the healings that would happen. And so, so he went, and during the service, he started to feel a burning sensation in his eye. And it wasn't completely foreign to him because with the eyelid being destroyed as well, sometimes an eyelash or something would get in his eye and it would be quite painful until he got it cleaned out and sorted out. But on the way, driving back from the service, he suddenly, what he experienced was how when the cloud, the sun is behind the cloud and the cloud passes away from the sun and suddenly everything gets bright. He experienced that and all of a sudden he realized that he was looking at road signs and reading them and he was seeing them with his eye that had been destroyed. So not only did God restore the eye that was going blind because of having to take up the burden of the other eye, God restored his eye that had been basically cooked by a molten piece of metal 20 years ago. Incredible. And I was fascinated to listen to Catherine Kuhlman talking about her ministry, talking about trying to answer some of the questions that, that she would get. People would ask her, how did it start and, and when did the miracle start? And she explained how she had a very dramatic encounter with, with God at her conversion. So her experience of being born again was, was very vivid for her. And so she started her ministry and started preaching salvation very early on. And only at a much later stage did she encounter the, the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when she first, in a meeting, began to preach about the power of the Holy Spirit... It was a series of meetings. On the second day, she was just getting into a message, and, and a lady got up and asked, her, can, I, can I say something? And by God's grace, she said, yes, okay, you can say something. And the lady said, I was healed in your service yesterday. I had a tumor, cancerous tumor, and I've been to the doctor this morning, and he confirmed that it's gone. 
And I just wanted to let you know. And, and so that, that was quite typical. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like she was going around praying and laying hands on people at her meetings all the time. She would just facilitate what the Holy Spirit was doing. And as, as she did her ministry, people were getting healed. So that's, it's incredible. But it actually, it breaks my mind even more. Because now the period from where this move of God was speaking to where we are now is so much shorter. And I'm asking the question, how, how did we get there and why? Why don't we even know these stories? Surely we understand that, you know, the reason that, uh, that the smartphone keeps getting better and better is because each generation just builds on the technology of the previous one. And you keep what works and you improve on it, and what doesn't work you do away with. Why, why do these stories seem to be absolutely absent in terms of the church's heritage and, and legacy? It, it just boggled, boggled my mind. And as you study these biographies, what, what does become clear is that all of these figures were controversial. They were all opposed, and some of them were slandered. They were all controversial. And it just seems to me that the church, over the past 50 years, has chosen, for some reason, to distance themselves from these controversial figures. But I'm wanting to just hold this timeline before you, and I'm wanting to ask you to pray about it. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God. God, show me... Show me what you are doing in the earth today. I want to be a part of it. And if, and if you agree with me, what, what God is doing is he's restoring in an incredibly beautiful and powerful way the church to what it was designed to be and to what we see in the book of Acts. And that, that curve is just starting to come up. There's no reason for us to have one hand on the handbrake at this stage. The only reason that we might feel that we need a hand on the handbrake is if we, in our mindset, are stuck in the suburban backyard context. But we need to realize that the playing field is actually so much bigger. The historical context is so much bigger. So in closing, I want to actually try and explain it like this. It's like the Pixar movie WALL-E, where the humans were floating in this big spaceship because Earth had been, been messed up so badly by pollution. So while the robots need to clean up the Earth, the humans are up in space, and they're all floating on their, on, their, on their hover chairs, and they're eating and drinking and entertaining themselves as best they can. And this has taken longer than they expected, so they all got fat, and they all got lazy, and they even suffered some bone loss. And so picture, if you will, in, in this context some brave pioneers actually looking at their feet and their legs as they're sitting in these hover chairs and saying to themselves, hang on, I think we were actually designed to walk on these. And they try to get up, and people around them look with alarm and shout, no, 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 like we weren't ever meant to try and use them. And then as they try to get up, eventually maybe the inevitable happens and some of them stumble and some of them fall, some of them maybe got hurt. But at the end of the day, does that mean that we get to choose ignorance about what the Bible says, how God has actually designed us to operate? So I want to challenge you with that today, that God has designed for us 
to be clothed with power from on high and to not try and do Christianity in our own strength and come up with clever intellectual ways of explaining why we don't see what we see in the Bible when the reason is that we're actually too comfortable trying to do it in our own strength, lacking the power. So very quickly I realized that I've used up all of my time. I want to just look at some conclusions. One, I want to challenge you to get hungry for an encounter. It's not just for others. All of these people that I've mentioned, and and there are many names that I actually didn't mention, like John G. Lake and Smith Wigglesworth, they sought after an encounter with God. They were hungry. John G. Lake was a successful businessman. He structured his day to create time for him to pray and to cry out for God, to reveal more to him. And it took a long time. But God says that if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. And so I want to challenge you to get hungry for your own encounter. Don't just settle for what we know, because there's a bigger playing field. There's a bigger context to what God is actually doing in the earth. Amen. And then secondly, get real about the cost. All of these people paid a heavy price for being the pioneers that they were. It's going to cost friends. It's going to cost many things. But in the end, it's going to be worth it. And then thirdly, get real close with him. The Holy Spirit's been waiting for hundreds, for more than 1,500 years. The Holy Spirit's been waiting to be led into the church and to take up his full role And like I said, he's always been there working in our hearts, drawing us to salvation, drawing us to Christ. But this aspect where he actually is allowed to come and clothe us on on high, with power from on high, and where we walk in intimate fellowship with him, he's so eager for that. And there's, there's so much more available to us. There's so much more intimacy that he's inviting us into. So I want to challenge you with that. And I want to close off for us with prayer. Holy Spirit, I just want to... I want to apologize to you on behalf of the church, Lord. For keeping you sidelined, Lord, for only wanting a part of who you are, a part of what you represent. For only wanting a part of what you want to give to us, Lord. And Holy Spirit, I want to invite you, Lord, to come and take up your place in the church Lord in Jesus name God we want to take our hands off the handbrake and we want to say Lord have your way Jesus you are the one that is building your church Lord come and build your church in Jesus name as I was preparing for for today's service I just felt the Lord lay on my heart that that there are people that are, that are struggling with suicidal thoughts, with hopelessness and despair. And so I just want to pray into that. Now, Father God, we just, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for the victory, Lord, that you achieved and that you won for us at the cross. Thank you, Lord, that by your stripes we are healed. That you have won our freedom in Jesus' name. God, so I just, I come alongside 
every one of your precious children, God, that is, that is struggling with hopelessness and with despair in the name of Jesus. Thank you, God, that as we resist the devil and submit to you that he flees, so I take authority over that depression. I take authority over that spirit of suicide in the name of Jesus Christ. And we release the light and the love and the presence of God into every situation, every heart that is feeling downtrodden, that is feeling hopeless now in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. So I just want to encourage you, if, if that's you, if, if you can relate with that, please reach out to the, to the ministry team that's going to be facilitating the Zoom prayer meeting afterwards. And I want to bless you and say have, a, have an amazing day. And I want to encourage you to, to go and pray and go and see God's face about what He is doing in the earth, what He has called you to do and how we can partner with Him. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.